Yo, what is going on, baby? Nathan Kennedy, The New Money Podcast, episode 39, how Jeremy Schneider retired with 3.5 million bucks at 36 years old. How y'all doing, man? Hope you are enjoying your weekend as usual. Today, I have brought back the interviews, and I'm going to continue to bring back the interviews and I got a really, really special guest. Jeremy Schneider is a financially independent content creator. Uh, he runs the Instagram page called Personal Finance Club on Instagram. He has over 100,000 uh, followers on that and he has fantastic content. And so I reached out to him because I thought you guys would love him and would love to hear his story. So uh, Jeremy was nice enough to come on the show and we had a great discussion that I wanted to share with you guys. Before we start the episode, as usual, my friends, if you're listening to this on Apple Podcast, I would really, really appreciate it if you left a review. It really helps the show get out there, helps the algorithm or God knows what actually gets the thing out there. But I'm pretty sure reviews help it. So I'd really appreciate it if you're using that platform. If you enjoy the show, if you hate the show, if you think anything of the show, just take a second. Let me know in those reviews. Thank you so much in advance. So yeah, Jeremy is the finished product of the FIRE movement, the financial independence retire early movement. And he walks through his story with money and how he sort of fell in love with personal finance. And it's just it is probably my favorite interview so far with all due respect to all my other guests that I've had. I just absolutely loved this interview. It's my favorite. And so, yeah, let's just jump on into it. Jeremy, how's it going, man? Great. Thanks for having me, Nathan. How are you doing? I mean, it's crazy times right now. You're Where in the States are you? I live in San Diego, the uh, southernmost city on the west coast of san diego you're a canadian right where in canada are you just just south of toronto so oh, uh nice. yeah su super canadian <laughs> i grew up in detroit so i was uh i was only about four hours from you or so oh um, did you no i yeah. i uh my mom's from windsor actually oh nice that's what i hear the, the detroit kids come up uh party a little bit young uh california you guys you guys are literally on fire right now are you not or are you north of that no, it's it seems to be everywhere. Um, yeah. In fact, over Labor Day weekend, I went to um, a city called Idlewild, which is uh, about two hours away from San Diego. And we were hiking one day, and we like saw it was like a blue sky, clear blue sky. And then we saw this little like puff of smoke in the distance. It wasn't. We actually thought it was a cloud at first. We're like, oh, it's a funny little cloud, like yeah. sitting on the horizon. And then it started like a big, very tall cloud. And we like actually just witnessed the, like the birth of one of the. It was like the next day on CNN is actually like the headline forest fire because it is the oh fire that was started God. by a, a gender reveal party. And in terms of like the massive amount of fires that are going on, that was like relatively small. But um, but we actually saw a fire start. And then as we drove back, the smoke from that fire was above us. And for the next week, actually, today is kind of like the first blue sky day we've had, not because wow. it's been cloudy, just because we've been like covered in smoke. And, um, you know, San Diego is far enough from the forest that. Like I don't, we don't get a lot of ash to really smell it, but it's just, it's definitely right. above us. Right. Yeah. No, it, I mean, I, I mean, I like, just like anybody just seeing some of the viral videos, it's just been kind of crazy. Um, 
I haven't been following it too in depth uh, myself, but yeah, I just, I, when you said San Diego, I was like, man, I got to ask this guy, like, how, how's it going out there? Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, you know, other than that story I said, like, I, we haven't seen like, a, and the smoke above, like, it's, you know, some of the people in San Francisco are like driving by burning buildings. I don't mean to laugh. It's like horrific, but uh, yeah. Yeah, we don't, we don't have that fire that close to us. I mean, yeah, like, like you said, I'm not trying to laugh, but you know, this 2020 feels like the years literally being on fire and then lo and behold people and like it's actually on fire now yeah, yeah definitely it's just like it's like it seems like the armageddon and you're like okay now i'm like <laughs> yeah. literally because for a long time i was like because like yeah covid's bad but you look outside and like things seem pretty normal Very on my window sure, and then i was like yeah. one morning you like full open the drapes and you're like okay it's literally fire raining from the sky now uh we've yeah. officially gone full 2020 Oh man, God bless, man. It's been a crazy year, but uh, just to get back on track, man, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. Really wanted to bring you on and, and just kind of chat more about your story and, and just learn about uh, your past. So man, just, I mean, super high level, quick and dirty. Tell me about your, uh, your upbringing, um, you know, where you went to school, wh what you do for work kind of thing, and then how you kind of uh, um, reached financial independence because as your page shows you've you've hit it so kind of just walk me through that uh that's the, your life pretty much <laughs> quick and dirty yeah. uh i was born in a dusty little town in southeast michigan called royal oak or rochester i forget um yeah so i uh i was a good student pretty good student not a great student i never really studied or anything but i was pretty smart kid, I think. I went to the University of Michigan, studied computer science, and then I had a couple internships at Microsoft, uh, internships at Microsoft before I graduated. Microsoft gave me a full-time job offer, which was a pretty darn lucrative, nice-looking one back then. And I decided to turn it down and start an internet company. And so at the age wow. of 21, uh, it was actually before I even graduated, I had started the company. And I had no idea what I was doing. For years, I floundered and was like for the first couple of years, I was literally using credit cards to pay for groceries and stuff because I wasn't making any money. Had no idea what I was doing, but then I just through pure persistence and slow improvements, I started to figure it out. And then um, fast forward about 10 years later, we were making about a million dollars a year. And then a company approached us and wanted to buy us for $5 million, a little bit over that, in fact. And I said, yes. Um, and we had never taken any sort of funding or loans or venture capital. And um, my mom was actually the co-owner. I owned 70%. She owned 30%. Um, and we also gave a bunch of money to the employees. We had five employees, seven of us total. Um, and so, yeah, so, so I made about $3 million from the sale of that company. I sent a check for a million dollars to the governments of the United States and California. And then I was left with about $2 million, um, at which point I did not want to become like a story that you read about with lotto winners who burn all their money. So I started reading every book I could on personal finance and investing. It suddenly dawned on me that it's really simple and clear. And there's just a bunch of nonsense out there in the space. But once you actually like read what the experts say, they all say the exact same thing, which is very, a very simple way to invest, um, which is what I started doing. Then a couple of years after I sold my company, I was working for the company that bought us. I quit that job and I've been retired in quotes. If you can't see me, I'm doing air quotes because <laughs> as a 36 year old at the time, now I'm 39, it feels a little bit pretentious to say retired or whatever. But um, yeah, I don't need a full-time job anymore. That $2 million that I had after I sold the company has grown now to about $3.5 million. And if history is any guide, I 
won't need to have a job for the rest of my life because my investments will provide more than enough money for me to live on forever. That's incredible, man. And man, you you really sum that up really perfectly. I mean, uh, whenever I ask that question, people either don't know how much to say or whatever. You just kind of bang in and out. That was uh, that was special. So, uh, just a few questions. When you started your company and you were you said you were sort of floundering around, so to speak, what sort of kept you going? Like what, what gave you the sort of runway that you, you needed? Where, was it like, were you getting small breaks here and there, or was it just, you just had a will to, to kind of just get through it. And then on top of that, I guess, um, what was the service, uh, that, that, uh, you were providing? Uh, I'll answer them in reverse order. So the company Perfect. is a company called Rentlinks, R-E-N-T-L-I-N-X, still exists, still is selling the service. Basically, it's a an apartment advertising service. So if you're a renter and you want to look for an apartment, you could go to Zillow or Craigslist or apartments.com or rentals.com. Um, we didn't really serve Canada, so maybe there are different ones in Canada. Um, but landlords have a problem, which is, okay, if renters are going to 50 different sites to search for an apartment, how do I post to all these sites, keep their, keep my ad up to date and everything. So we created a service where you could, a landlord could post once to rent links and automatically syndicate or feed post to 50 different websites. If you wow. change the rent, update the description, add a photo, all that good stuff, all those different websites automatically update. And so that was the idea was basically when we sold when I started the company, it was not that. It was called Hercules Solutions. Um, I was just Great doing name. Yeah, <laughs> so random name. I was doing uh, like affordable custom software, as I called it. I was just trying to get people to pay me to program. Um, it just didn't work very well. No one really wanted to pay me to program. They wanted a finished product, not some twenty-one-year-old kid who was going to build whatever they wanted, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think like when you ask like, how did I keep going? You know, I think that I was just hungry back then, like mm. literally hungry. Like I wanted to eat food and I didn't have any money. And every single day, <laughs> um, I kept wanting to work harder. And I think that I was just very stubborn. Um, you know, like I think baked into your question is like, what would you tell someone who is deciding whether or not to keep going? And I, I'm not yeah. sure. I mean, the answer the answer always is if you want success in business, you have to do exactly two things. You have to be persistent and you have to improve every single day or at mm. least have constant improvement, right? If you mm. do those two things, eventually you have no other option except for success because if you never stop and you keep getting better and better, at some point, if you take that forward to its logical conclusion, you're fantastic at what you do. You're the best at what you do and yeah. you haven't stopped and so you'll eventually have a great business, right? Um, and so I, I think at the time though, I was, I didn't know what I was doing and I just think I was stubborn and I think my stubbornness, mm-hmm. I didn't want to admit to, you know, like, I guess if I like transport myself back to one year into the business where I, I think the first year, you know, when, the day I started the company, I said, okay, if I can't afford health insurance in the year, I need to pull the ripcord and go get a job. And, you know, mm-hmm. I was, I went to a good college. I had a computer science degree. So I, I figured a year from then I would still be an employable young person. But I was like, if I can't afford health insurance, and it turns out like a year later, I basically still couldn't afford health insurance. I didn't really didn't have an answer. And so I didn't have, yeah. I think for a couple of years, I didn't have health insurance. Um, but I was like, eh, I don't want to like, I guess 
I didn't want to admit defeat. I didn't want to like say right. that it failed or whatever. And so, and like there was like little, I, I wasn't making zero. It wasn't like for a year. I was just like mm. shouting into a, a vacuum. I was, you know, I had like a little side gig. I made like a small sale here and there. And so mm. it was just like, just enough to like tempt me to keep going, like a little taste of it. And so then I just refused to give up. And then over time, you know, it really took about four years before I really had a business and not just my hustle trying to like make a sale here and there. During that time when you were trying to get it off the ground, were you working full time and growing this on the side or were you just completely in uh, in the business just trying to grow it? So I never had a full time job. You know, the first the first full time job I've had in my life, um, you know, I'm, I'm not counting internships when I worked full time. I'm not counting summer jobs when I worked full time. Mm -hmm. But like as an adult, the first full time job I had in my life was April 1st of 2015, the day I sold my company. And on that day, I became an employee of the uh, the parent company, um, and so um, so no, I was just full in on the business. Um, I had I graduated with about six thousand dollars in cash, like a surplus. Um, I did not have any student loans, and so I was extraordinarily privileged. Um, mm. I did that mostly for my parents paying for college, which was very nice. Um, I also ran track in Michigan and got a athletic scholarship. And so like, if you're listening to this and you're rolling your eyes, you're like, oh, this white rich douchebag. I'm like, yeah, like I see what you're <laughs> saying. You know, like uh, my parents like saved just enough money to pay for an undergraduate degree. Um, yeah. You know, I give myself a little bit of credit for like figuring out how to run really fast and get a, a scholarship to a division one university. Um, but between those two things, and then also I worked every single summer I worked during the school year. So for, you know, some semesters I was a division one athlete. I was a computer science student and I was working. I worked in the mm -hmm. summers. I, in grad school, I, I taught to get free tuition. And so, you know, there's a little bit of work ethic built into that story too. Um, but yeah, I basically when I graduated, instead of not working and just getting student loans, I had a little bit of a surplus. So I, lived on that for a while. Um, and then I lived on credit cards for a while. And so after a year, I had about $12,000. Now, I think after the first year, I had $10,000 in credit card debt. Mm -hmm. Just and I think, you know, I, I was spending about, you know, 1500 or $2,000 a month, I was living very frugally. Um, but, you know, you got to eat, right? You know, and my, yeah. my, my, my company wasn't um, making enough to feed me. And then the second year, I kept living frugally. And I Ramp or the credit card debt went up another two thousand. Mm -hmm. So I think my max credit card debt was twelve thousand dollars. And then part part way into the third year, the company had generated enough profits, had enough cash, um, and my mom had joined the company at that point. Where I wrote us both a check for twelve thousand dollars each, like mm -hmm. just draws out of the company, and I paid off my credit card debt in one payment, which was very nice. That's awesome. As you're going through um, your business and things like that. And I know you said when you sold off the company, you, you got, you know, you paid a million to the uncle Sam and then you had 2 million left over. Did your, do you feel like your quote unquote, like personal finance journey started then? Or do you think that maybe without studying per se, but like living such a frugal life, like it helped you transit, like you've always been on your sort of like FI journey and, and you only sort of really, um, doubled down on it on, on that sale. Yeah, I'm not sure I even knew the the term FI or fire <laughs> until I had retired. Um, yeah. I think that's like more of a recent, uh, like, you know, world to me. Yeah. Um, but I definitely, from the time I was a child, was given good, you know, role models. And so um, one example is when I was 15, I think I had my very first job, maybe I was 14. I, I worked at a summer camp in the summer, and I think I made like $1,200 for the whole summer. And 
my dad very cleverly. So for you Canadian listeners, this isn't exactly the same because we have what's we have an IRA in the U.S. I think you guys have a RRSP or a TFA R- or something. Yeah, RRSP and then TFSA is like our Roth IRA. Okay, so yeah, so we had like so my equivalent of the TFSA. Um, the, one of the rules is you can't contribute money unless you make money. So you can't just get money out of thin air, and you can't contribute more than you make. And, and you also can't contribute at, in 2020 more than $6,000. But back then I made $1,200. So my dad very cleverly took $1,200 of his own money, put it in, into a Roth IRA for me, and then sat me down and said, hey, this is what I'm doing. You know, I'm going to let you keep your $1,200 because you worked for the summer, which is a good thing. Working's good. Thumbs up. But I'm also going to give you like a dollar per dollar match and put it into your Roth IRA because once it's in here, it's never taxed again. And he's, then he said, we're, we're going to go in here. And we're going to buy mutual funds. He wasn't then and still isn't now a really big index fund guy, which I, at this point in my life, disagree with him on. But, yeah. you know, he explained to me like how investing works and why we buy mutual funds. And um, and I was like, you know, I was just, I have very little memory of that exact conversation. But, yeah. you know, then as like a 30-year-old, when people are asking you know, what's an IRA or how do I invest? I'm like, what? Like you just go mm-hmm. buy some mutual funds. Like it, it's, it's, you know, as was a part of me because I got that upbringing. And so again, like extraordinary privilege. And sometimes when I like tell the story, I'm like, I, I can just imagine some listener out there being like, okay, so you're just a douchebag whose dad gave you 1200 bucks. I was like, yeah, you know, for sure. Yeah. Like, like my parents, <laughs> like were good parents. I was like an upper middle-class like white kid in suburban Detroit, you know, I had right. every fortunate thing I could have, but I tell the story because I think there's a lot of people who don't have these privileges, don't have this view into the world that I have. And I want to like share it and say, Hey, talk to your 15 year old about an IRA, pay mm-hmm. off your debt. You know, you buy mutual funds, you know, like learn from what I learned when I was a kid and, and what I've learned as an adult to better your own financial position. Absolutely. And you know what, I, like a, a few things, you know, number one, you seem very gracious with, with your position in life and very self-aware of, of, of your sort of blessings in your life. And, um, you know, I, and I know you don't feel this, but there's no shame in, you know, having a great upbringing. And I think um, it's, it's so hard because um, now more than ever, we're seeing that most people don't have that. Um, and, and that's okay because what I love about your page and what your, your, your whole message is, is that, yes, I, you know, I had some blessings in life, but, you know, I also did a few things for myself. I, I lived off nothing for how many years and, and, um, it's, it's possible, right? There's, there's so many possibilities for a lot of different people. So, uh, for that person, maybe that's a little bit skeptical, uh, that the first thing comes to mind is, okay, well, this guy just had a head start. How do you, in your, in your messaging and your, your content, how do you sort of talk to that person and say, Hey, listen, I know I had this upbringing, but like, here are still the core principles that like apply to all of us. Well, thank you. Um, and I agree, like, I'm not ashamed of my upbringing, but I do think, you know, it's important to acknowledge it. And I guess the reason I brought it up a couple of times is because I don't want people to write off the opportunity for success just because I had privilege, right? You mm-hmm. know, because the things that I've done are the same things that any person should do, even if they haven't. So if someone says, okay, my parents didn't have a college fund for me, I mm-hmm. didn't run track in college, you know, the answer isn't, okay, we'll just give up, bury yourself in debt, go lease an expensive car, you're screwed. It, you're not screwed. Like, yeah, yeah exactly. you were dealt a different hand, but you know, you gotta take the same path. And so, and I've done a lot of things right. You know, for one example is, um, 
I, I didn't buy a new car my entire life until I was a multimillionaire. You know, mm. for a year after I was a millionaire, I was still driving a 1999 Ford Explorer Sport that was a two-door two SUV that mm. had, you know, had 150,000 miles or something. And it's just because I didn't want to burn my money, right? And so, yeah. and, and also like in, in, in the frame of wealth, I'm not even in the one percent. You know, we we don't hear as much as much about lately. But you know, back in the, like the Occupy Wall Street days, there's yeah. like all this, a lot of this like you know class warfare with the one percent. Like I'm not even in the one percent. Like I my net worth right now is three and a half million dollars. I think you need about eight million dollars to be in the one percent. I think mm -hmm. I'm in like the three percent or so. And for my age, I'm probably in the one percent. Um, mm -hmm. But you know, in terms of wealth in the world, I'm still like you know not in the upper echelon. I'm just pretty well off. Mm -hmm. And so. Well, I guess my point of saying that is like I could have burned all my money too. I could be broke. You know, people have won the lotto and lost more than I than I've made in my life. And mm -hmm. so don't write off the success because of the privilege. Just like learn from the the lessons that I've learned and learn from the actions to, you know, figure out how that applies in your own life. For sure. I think personally your your story is incredible. And I think you're like a textbook guy of doing the right things and getting to the right spot and, and retiring early. Like this whole notion of financial independence, you hear about, you know, these people, they say that these people that retire at like 35, 36, like you're that guy. So it's, it's, it's so funny that I'm at, we're actually just chatting and talking and, and kind of going through it. You know, I hope that some people that are listening to this are, are really excited by that. What are some things that you would say to, to young adults in particular, uh, you know, kids coming out of school, young adults starting their jobs that even, even if it's early retirement, that's still pretty far out for them. They're not really like thinking that far out. What do you think, like, why is it important for them to care right now is what would you say to that sort of question? I think kind of like we saw with my story, there's like these habits and these mindsets that start young and exist through your life. And so if you, you know, if you're someone who is in high school or in college and spending every dollar they make and burning through money and going into debt and, uh, you know, really materialistic and, and not frugal, that's going to be so much harder to change when you're 40 than it is when you're 20. Right. And not only will it be harder to change the impact by doing it young is like massively different. And so like, um, you know, one story that I like to tell, it's not really a story. It's like an example, but um, if from the age, like, let's say you're a person who spends every dollar that you make in your day job, but from the age of 20 to 30, just 10 years of your life, 20, 21 up to 29, you work as a bartender two nights a week and you make a hundred bucks a night. So mm -hmm. that's 200 bucks a week or 800 bucks a month. Mm -hmm. Um, and you are, so that's your side just will just, two, just, you're just, you know, all the days, your day job, your weekends free, whatever, but just two nights a week, you make a hundred bucks a night and you take for just those 10 years you invest that money and mm -hmm. every other penny the rest of your life you spend. And after the age of 30, you never invest another penny. You spend every penny of your day job. You just invested your two nights a week side hustle for 10 years from your 20s or in your 20s. At the age of 65, that investment will have grown to over $5 million. Yeah. It's like a massive amount of money because from the age from of 30 to 65 is, you know, well, from the age of 20 to 65 is 45 years, 30 to 65 is 35 years. And so for all that time, that 800 bucks a month you were throwing in, into an investment for those 10 years grows and grows and grows and compounds and compounds and compounds and turns into this massive amount of money. You know, if you were to start that at 45 instead of 20, 
I actually don't know that number off the top of my head, but it'd be like a hundred thousand dollars or something. It'd be yeah, like, it'd be like dramatically less. Right. And so, yeah. you know, so that's why it's so important, you know, and that's not to say you're screwed if you're 45, cause you're not, it just means you probably need to save more. You probably need to save longer, whatever it is. Um, but if you're 25, you have this like fantastic, opp- if you're 20 or 25 or you're young, you have this fantastic opportunity to get your mindset right, to get your habits right, and to start that early and, and often process of compound growth that can build massive wealth over your life. For sure. For somebody that's getting started and and they hear that, they're like, okay, you know, great. Um, that sounds really cool. $5 million just investing in my 20s. Like, I, I can figure that out. How, what, how would you recommend they go about learning about investing? I mean, obviously, you release a lot of great content. I try to do my best to, to release some good stuff and, and talk about it on the show. But what are some ways that, like, if you didn't know anything about investing, in fact, tell me about when you started your journey. Like, how did you st- begin learning about it to, to really get a firm understanding to take you from where you are, where you were then? Um, to, to where you are now and having a really good understanding of, you know, index funds, low cost, broad based, um, international funds, et cetera. Uh, so how did you do it and how would you recommend somebody just get started with it? That's a good question. Um, and I think when I was 35, like the day I sold my, or 34, when I sold my company, um, I think I had like a very pop culture understanding of investing like I bought right. some stocks, I bought some mutual funds, like I kind of like, I kind of knew, and, and which is better than most people, by the way, like most people don't even know what a mutual fund is or whatever. So, you know, I'm not trying to like downplay it, but I, I didn't really have like what I consider very like, you know, encyclopedic education on it. I just kind of like saw my dad do some stuff. I, I bought mm-hmm. some, like our E-Trade was invented when I was in you know college or whatever. And so I was like, right. Ooh, like internet stock trading. And so I bought some stocks. Um, and then when I, you know, I had my windfall, I was like, I was like, all right, time to get serious. And so I literally just, I went to Amazon and it was like, uh, how to invest or something like that. And I, and I, and a book popped up called the beginner's guide to investing. And I was like, I was like, all right, that sounds, you know, like I, I have a, enough humility to not need like the advanced guide yet or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was like a hundred pages. I was like, good. Like I don't need more than a hundred pages. Like give me the cliff notes here. And it was actually like mm-hmm. a really solid book. I like walked through A to Z and I was like, I was like, Whoa, like, and it really was kind of like the cliff notes and that it like kind of referenced all the, um, uh, like classic books on investing. Um, and so then I started reading some more and I like read two or three or four, I think I've read, you know, whatever, a couple dozen of these investing books now. And they all say the exact same thing. That's like the big joke in, in investing, which is like, they're all like spend less than you make, invest yeah. early and often yeah. buy and hold index funds. Don't time the market. Don't pick stocks. Don't day trade. Don't, you know, it's like so simple. And so, you know, when someone, if someone's listening to me, this, like you kind of need, you can't really just take my word for it. Cause I'm just some crack pot on a podcast, but like, <laughs> but but to answer your question, I would go do what I did, like go get a couple of books or at least go seek out good content. Um, yeah. You know, whether it's, you know, YouTube like might be hit or miss because you could definitely get some like, you know, day traders in there. But like, you know, find mm-hmm. some books or or find some like trusted content, you know, and, and one of my favorite ones is Bogleheads, B-O-G-L-E, Heads, which is Jack Bogle is the founder of Vanguard. He's the popularizer of the index fund. And, mm-hmm. and the Bogleheads basically espouse his style of investing. And in my opinion, they're the like altruistic, no nonsense. They like they have the right answer on investing. Yeah. Um, and I think that people often when they start doing their homework, they find their way to the Bogleheads and they're like, oh, okay, this is these are the good guys. These are the guys that aren't like trying to sell me something and like, you know, set me up with something bad. Um, mm-hmm. but you know, all the all the books on investing basically 
say the same thing. And so, yeah, go get a book on investing. One of my favorite ones now is called The Simple Path to Wealth by J.L. Collins. It's just like kind of like an easier read and, and just so, you know, talks about the same thing is spend less than you make, yeah. buy and hold index funds, you'll be wealthy. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, JL Collins, I, I listened to, uh, there's this one podcast I listened to. It's called uh, Optimal Finance Daily. And they, they actually read a lot of his blogs. Um, he, he's got some really great stuff. And uh, another one that I really like is, is The Wealthy Barber. Um, it, that's a really good book. It was, I think it's by Dave Shilton. He's a Canadian business guy. But uh, yeah, that, that's, that's another great one to kind of just start. And, and another thing that I want to say too, just, just kind of as an aside is that's how I kind of came into it too. Like I, when I started like really learning a lot about this, when I started to read more books, like I found my way to the to Vanguard group and, and like the whole, like the fan club, the Bogleheads. And um, I, I heard this really interesting thing the other day that they released some of their numbers of, and, and I, I can't remember the specific numbers, but it just showed that there was like minimal sell-off by a lot of their clients, like, like almost none. Like, yeah, I saw speaking. that same study. And, and, and they just held on. They, they were just so rock solid. And you're talking about just, through the coronavirus crash, right? Ex exactly. Exactly. Through this past year, they just were just locked in. And, um, I don't know. I just, I remember hearing that and just being so happy, you know, cause you're hearing a lot about, um, these, these, you know, MSNBC talking about, you know, this, this person was just about to retire and, and they sold off and, and these sort of doomsday stories, which honestly scare people and scare people away from the stock market. Yeah. But to kind of hear these, uh, the more broader picture of like, Hey, li listen, that's, and that's a lot of people. That's not a, that's not just like this small group of people that didn't sell off. Like that is a, that is a considerable amount that of people that understood the process, understood that there's going to be highs and lows and, and then you have to invest for the long term. And so that was really interesting. And, and I guess that leads me down this rabbit hole, but also this question, um, how do you think somebody that's getting started? Like, obviously they're a little bit more vulnerable because they're trying to learn how do they navigate learning the right things in terms of, yes, there, you know, a lot of the good stuff leads to the same sort of message, but there's also a lot of noise out there. Um, how, how do you sort of comb through that, um, with, with all the stuff that's out there on making money, investing and things like that? Yeah, that's tough. I, I feel a lot of sympathy for someone who, you know, did not have the financial framework set for them as a child. And then, as an adult, they kind of dip their toe into the world of investing. Because if you dip your toe into the world of investing, I feel like you see Bitcoin and day trading and Forex and drop shipping and uh, mm. stock picking and stock tip websites and insurance and whole life insurance and multi-level oh, marketing and like just, and like it all, it's all investing, right? And and so when someone's like, oh, he's an investor, it seems like this really complicated thing. And, yeah. you know, my, my answer is like, you just, you got to like, you got to learn, you got to like get the education, you know, mm -hmm. from the good sources. And it's like, how do you know the good sources from the bad ones? I mean, time. It's just, yeah, <laughs> I think you kind of have to like, yeah, read some books or like talk to some successful people. And, and there's, you know, I, you know, I, I hesitate to say that because I'm like, you know, I, I could see someone who gets roped into a, a pyramid scheme be like, Oh no, he's successful. This is how he did it. I'm, I have to do what he does. And, and it's really just like a facade of success and it's, mm -hmm. it's really a, a scam or whatever. And so, you know, it all comes down to education and, and common sense and being, being careful. And, you know, clearly like if you take, you know, my advice, you would go get some books on index funds, 
you know, read and understand those and realize that everything else is basically nonsense. Um, but I do, you know, I, I do think that it's important. I, I think JL Collins actually makes a good point is that it also takes humility to accept that like everyone is capable of being scammed. And I remind myself of that, you know, I, I am constantly questioning with people who are messaging me. I'm like, is this person scamming me? Um, not because I'm, <laughs> you know, not because I'm super paranoid. I don't think, but just because I want to not be so confident that I, I'm like, oh, I'm this master investor. Like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna kill it. And then I get into something, and I'm like, oh wait, I did, I, I did the scam because I was blinded by my own confidence or whatever. And so I think that just being skeptical and really trying to do your homework and and check a bunch of different sources will help protect you. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. It's really interesting too because it is it is so difficult when you're when you're just getting started to to kind of comb through that. And I think even with like I think it's I think it's Barstool. Um, they do a, a lot of they started really popularizing like making um the stock market like more gamble centric, which is something that like if you're just stock picking like randomly, like it is gambling. Like it it, it truly is. It's purely chance. If you're not you know doing fundamental analysis or value. Uh, investing or anything like that. Like you're just kind of in the game going after the big names. And I feel like there's this movement in pop culture that's targeted almost um, to, to young, uh, young adults about um, just this sort of the jazz and the buzz around just the stock market. It, it's the thing. Um, I mean, I mean, personally, that might be just biased from content that I have been seeing. Have you seen that sort of evolution? Have you seen that it's getting more uh, popular and people are more are talking about it more in general? And and there's this more buzz around it, or do you think it's just it's just the same thing, but it's just a different version of it? Yeah, it's hard for me to really have a full historical context, but I I'm leaning towards thinking that it's always the same thing. I feel like mm. the con artists come every decade and they just are wearing a different outfit and like the the day traders come every decade and and you know and like the most current you know manifestation of that is you know Robin Hood, which which I like because Robin Hood basically you know made their whole business on being a zero fee brokerage, um, which, and, you know, as someone who thinks fees are bad because they're like kind of the enemy of your wealth creation. Um, I am thankful to Robinhood for that because they actually did push the rest of the industry down to zero fees, at least in the U S Canada, I don't think has that yet. Sorry. Um, yeah, not as much, not as yeah. much, no, <laughs> um, but you saw Vanguard, which has great options. Um, yeah. and, but I think because Robinhood is so popular, you know, people are tempted to get in and pick stocks. Like it just like, you know, Tesla seems like a crazy example oh, recently. God. And it was like beyond meat a few months ago. And before that I was another one. And just like, yeah. people are like, Oh, Tesla, you know, I, like, I, I, you know, you talked about like when we were offline, I think we were talking about some of the comments on my Instagram and most people are overwhelmingly positive, but some people like, like to tear me down. And, and I, you know, I think, I think I made some like, kind of like general statement, which was like, you know, yeah. be careful of Tesla, because if you pick just that, you're not, you know, you're not diversifying across all stocks and it could go down. And I, I, I think I pointed out that Tesla currently has a higher market cap than Toyota, than Ford, than General Motors and Daimler Chrysler combined. So like, yeah. the, and Tesla makes like 65 times fewer cars. So it makes like, you know, 2% or 1% of the, you know, whatever, one or 2% of the cars and is worth more 
than those other companies. And everyone's like, Tesla's not a car company. It's a technology company. It's like, well, 96% of their revenue comes from selling cars. So you can call it whatever you want. But the point is like, (laughs) be careful about what you're buying because maybe it might turn out that like this, it's a little bit overhyped. And then if that, if comes down in line with the other car companies, it's going to lose 65 times its value, right? Like if, if it if it was measured at the same rate. And so um, I just feel like there's tons of speculation built into that right now. Um, and, and I think some of that comes from this, like this Robin Hood day trading mentality. And so I'm like thankful to them for the low fees. I appreciate that they can kind of entice people to get started investing, but I don't think it's the optimal way to like maximize your own wealth. You know, like you said, going down that, that rabbit hole, of those YouTube gurus that are going to tell you that you can trade your way to millions and millions. Just if there's one thing that we, you can take away from this podcast is that that's absolute BS. That's, that's not the way to go. Uh, you know, you're better off to create long-term wealth, you know, through index funds. And then that's how I invest. And I think that's how Jeremy invests and that's how most successful long-term investors invest. Yeah. It's interesting, but, um, kind of, I, let's just kind of pivot. I kind of want to just ask you, so, you know, you're living off, I think it's 3.5. Let's talk about uh, how that actually works, the logistics of it. Do you have a designated withdrawal rate? Is that floating? Um, Do you rebalance often? How do you sort of manage that? Um, Is it, you know, monthly that you take it out? Like, how are you sort of going about actually living off that sum of money? Um, I think I get that question a lot. And I don't really talk about just because it seems like supremely uninteresting to me. Um, And, and, you know, I guess because it, like once you see it, you're like, oh, whatever. You know, he's, he's got a <laughs> bunch of money and a bunch of accounts and he just spends it every once in a while. So, um, you know, like the exact rebalancing, the exact withdrawal rate, isn't that interesting? So mm-hmm. from a pure, like I'll just break it down for you. So like, you know, I'll expose Wizard of Oz from behind the uh, curtain or whatever. I, most of it, I think about, so I have 3.5 million, about uh, 800,000 is in the house I own or the condo I own in San Diego with no, um, no mortgage. Um, about 250,000 is in other real estate investments, which are like, I own like small pieces of a couple different apartment buildings in the U S. Um, what's that leave us left with about 2.5 million. And yeah, the other, the other 2.5 million or 2.4 million is just in my fidelity account. It's in mm-hmm. mostly in index funds. Although I did own a property with a friend that we sold for 800 grand a few months ago. And so a lot of that is still in cash mm-hmm. kind of, being like ready for another real estate investment. And so like right now I just, you know, I have tons of cash. And so I spend about, you know, four or 5,000 bucks a month. And then I just move it to my checking account once a month from my investment account. Um, and there's usually it's, I guess it's not as exact as like selling 3% every single year and then like living on it just because I've got bigger pieces moving. So like, mm-hmm. you know, when I bought this house, I had to sell some stuff. When I sold the other house, I got this big influx of cash. Um, but, but yeah, if I ever find myself where all my real estate money is in real estate and I need some cash, I'll just sell 5,000 bucks a month worth of index funds or whatever, and, um, let the other $2 million ride and keep growing. And that is likely to sustain me forever. Right. When you, when you got the, when you sold off the business, um, you know, you, you got, you, you paid your dues. Was it your income tax? Was that personal income? And that's why you have to pay so much like, uh, 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 I think it was a million bucks you had to pay that year or was it business? And then when you had that, the leftover money, um, did you have to pay, do you have to pay withdrawal fees at all? Like what, what sort of like umbrellas 
is that money in under right now? Great question. So yeah. So if you're listening, capital gain is capital means stuff or money. Gain means like go up in value. And so when your stuff goes up in value, then you, the government taxes you on the difference. And so for example, if you invest $10,000 and then it grows to $30,000 and then you sell that investment, the government will say, Hey, congratulations on your gain, but we've never been, we never taxed you on that $20,000 of that mm -hmm. capital gain. And so then they, you know, they tax you at the capital gains rate. And so for my business, the majority of it was a capital gains tax because I think that like my initial contribution to the business was like $2,000 or something like that. So I had like mm -hmm. my, my, uh, principal on the investment was $2,000 and then the value ended up being, and just like with the way our deal was broken down, it was like $4 million and the other million dollars like came a little bit later. So it was $4 million. And so the government said, okay, you, you turned 2000 into 4 million. So 4.998 million or whatever, um, you have to pay capital gains tax on. And, you know, I love California. It's a beautiful state, but they have very high capital oh gains God. tax. So, um, <laughs> the government hit me for 20% and California hit me for another 13%. So basically one third of my money mm. was gone. And so when I, when I say I made 3 million and end up with 2 million, it's because I literally had to pay one third of the money. And like, you know, it's just, it's, it's nothing crazy. It's just filling out tax forms like everyone else does, except my mm. tax forms had like really big numbers on it that year. And, you know, before that, by the way, I had never made more than $36,000 a year in my entire life. I was like a poor person, like renting a room, driving the 99 Ford, like living yeah. on nothing. And so like my, my income, you know, and, and my income tax was a little bit weirder because I had the business income too. But like, personally, like I, I only had like a few thousand dollars a time and suddenly I had millions. And so I like my, my income tax said, okay, you made $3 million as your capital gains, uh, mm. send us a check for a million dollars. And so I literally, um, I think I forget, I think one of them I did digitally, but one of them I literally wrote a check cause, cause I think like 600,000 was to federal government and three or three or 400,000 was just California. I think one of them, I wrote them a check and they like, they sent me a letter in the mail. It says, you can't, you know, we cash it this time, but in the future, if it's more than $10,000, you, you don't, don't send us a check. It's too much money. I was like, Oh, I don't know. Like, yeah, I thought it was fine. Exactly. Exactly. So, so now with, with that sum of money, have you maxed out all of your sort of uh, tax sheltered accounts and then you have additional accounts and, and, and those, that additional brokerage account, um, the capital gains on that are subject to tax. Is that, is that a fair assessment of what's kind of, yeah, going on sorry, that was the second part of your last question. And so no, for me, yeah. like 95% of my money is in a regular brokerage account just right. because I got too much all at once to fit into, I would prefer it to all be in IRAs and 401ks or yeah. TFSPs and RFAs or whatever you guys call them. Sorry. Um, okay. yeah. uh, but you know, just, you know, those, those tax rules that were written by the U S and Canadian government were not there to shelter people like me who suddenly have more money than they know what to do with. Mm -hmm. It was there to basically incentivize and encourage regular people to invest. And so I take advantage of them where I can, when I worked for two years for the company that that bought my company, I maxed out my 401k every single year, which was 19,500 bucks. So, and then, then I rolled it to an IRA. So I think I have maybe 150,000 or 200,000 in my tax advantaged accounts, which I'm just mm -hmm. not going to touch forever. Probably that's going to be money. that's going to like go to charity or to my heirs or something. Mm -hmm. Um, and then everything else is just in a taxable brokerage account. And yeah, I pay, uh, gains if there are gains, you know, mm -hmm. there's not a ton of gain right now because, um, 
I, you know, when I had that $2 million after paying the tax bill, that was all tax free. So my principal is like $2 million. And so when it goes from 2 million to 2.1 million, then yeah, I, I have a hundred thousand dollars of gains. And so that's kind of what my taxes are looking like these days where, right. um, the gains on my investments are all being reported as income and I pay, you know, pay the tax on that and keep the rest. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Cause when you said that, I, I was thinking, I was like, you know, a lot of the content and, and a lot of the stuff I read in terms of scenarios and, and people I've talked to, it's, it's, it's a slow, steady sort of um, climb. And, and so people are able to generate millions in those tax sheltered accounts because it's over like, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 years, but yeah, like 2.2 million at once, like you're going to max it out if you can, but then it's just going to, you're just going to have to eat the, the capital gains because it's just, it's, that's not what it was designed for. Right. So that's, that's awesome, man. I, I mean, I, I don't mean to, to geek out. I'm just, I was just so curious, um, to, to kind of just get into the numbers. And, and so the last part of the, the interview, thank you so much. I know we're, we're kind of getting along here, but I just want to ask, so now you've been kind of quote unquote retired or semi-retired or things like that. So what inspired you to start on social media, kind of go after that? grow the page? Um, and then what are some other sort of ventures? I know you mentioned real estate that you're doing. So what are, what are some other things that, uh, uh you, you've been keeping busy with since you became financially independent? Yeah. So, you know, I'm, my background is having a computer science degree. I had a successful tech startup and exit. And so I think like the logical next step for someone like me is to go and like make the big company. And so mm -hmm. I think a lot of people, you know, a lot of super successful tech CEOs, their success is their second one. They had like a small success and then a big success, like, you know, uh, Reed Hastings from Netflix and Bob Parsons from GoDaddy both come to mind. Um, and so I kind of saw that as my next logical step because like my first startup, while it was successful and I was happy with it, it was like a mess. Like I didn't know what I was doing. Like if I take the skills and capital and connections I have now and start another company, I think it would be like massively more successful, mm. but like, I kind of like started down that route a couple of times. And I like, I just didn't care. Like when I was younger, I needed to eat like hungry. Like I was actually needed food in my belly. And now I don't have that like intrinsic motivation. And so I like really need to care about what I'm doing. And so I, I had a, a girlfriend who I'm no longer with, but she asked me at the time, um, like basically, what do you want to be when you grow up? Like if you could do anything, what, what would you want to do? And I just love personal finance and investing. I love helping people with money. I love talking about it. I love you know, the concept that I can spend 30 minutes with someone and like turn them into a future millionaire and like change their entire life. And every morning to this day, including this morning, I wake up and I'm still pumped about it. Like this morning, I like couldn't even, I'm right now I'm actually like making a, like a video course to basically walk everyone through the A to Z of, of make, of, you know, investing, how to invest. And I'm like so excited to do it. Cause I'm just like, you know, I just love the stuff. I think if, you know, it's nothing, nothing I'm saying is a secret or it's nothing novel, but I think if I have one gift, it's to like make it simple. Like what is a complex topic in general is to like kind of break it down in simple terms. And, and I think that connects with a lot of people and they're like, oh, okay, now this finally makes sense. Um, so yeah, that's basically what I'm doing. I am basically full-time on personal finance club. Um, I haven't yet made any money, although I am going to sell this course for, and I feel a little bit like a sellout for selling the course, but it's going to be for the best of reasons because it's going to fund all the free content and I'm going to give 20% of it to charity. And it's going to like, I think allow people to just have a little bit of skin in the game to make sure that they yeah. take the course more seriously. Cause if you 
just give it away for free. They probably would not get through the whole thing because they're bored of it or whatever. So yeah, that's what I do. I, I teach people about investing. Awesome. Awesome. That's amazing. Well, Jeremy, honestly, thank you so much uh, for your time. I, I really appreciate uh, you coming on. I could probably talk to you another two hours. I'll probably pick on you to come back on the show because I've just enjoyed um, speaking with you. I have a million more questions that I'll probably ask you off air. <laughs> um, but thank you so much for, for coming on. And uh, really quick, just kind of share uh, where people can find you and uh, get in touch with your stuff. Sure. It's Personal Finance Club. So you can Google it. Uh, most of the magic is currently happening on Instagram at Personal Finance Club, personalfinanceclub.com. I'm a pretty easy dude to find. Um, yeah, come come, uh, give me a follow. This guy's legit. I think he, I think he, what, you have um, 105,000 followers now? Yeah, I started like last year at the beginning of 2019 and I crossed 100,000 followers uh, like a week ago or something. Um, so it's, it's going great. I like didn't know. I mean, you know, I like I had never really used Instagram before, so I'm, I I didn't know if you could go on Instagram and talk about index funds and have yeah. people be interested. But uh, it seems Lo to have struck at least a little bit of a, a chord. I you know, I mean, there's there's people with 20 million followers who you've never heard of before, so I'm still a nobody in the bigger scheme of things. But I'm certainly excited. That I feel like people are getting something out of it. So I'm going to continue. 100 percent, man. And you've got really great stuff that I follow intently, and I learn every day from a lot of the stuff you're posting. So, uh, Jeremy, Thanks. thank you so much again for coming on. I, uh, really appreciate it. And I'm probably going to have you back on, man. Nice. <laughs> Thanks, Nathan. Anytime. I appreciate it. So that is it for the interview. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. We're not doing a new money mailbag. I'm going to try to release a episode midweek. Just going to touch on a review of different online brokerages, stock brokerages, things like that. I'm just going to kind of review them and give my take on them. Canadian brokerages that I like and that I think are really good options for young adults and pretty much everyone. Uh, so we'll do that question then. But uh, I really hope you guys enjoyed the interview half as much as I did because I absolutely loved bringing them on. And I, as I was interviewing, learned like a ton. And so if you took anything away from what he was saying, please let me know. Go follow him at Personal Finance Club on Instagram. Great guy. That's pretty much it from me this week, guys. So thank you again for tuning in and I will see you later. But for now, I am out this mother peak.